why do we study the greats? Like, why do we study, I don't know, Abraham Lincoln or Napoleon or Einstein or whoever, right? Like, why do we study them? We likely believe they have some wisdom to give us. Yeah, like we think that they can help us be great. Do you know who they studied? They studied Jesus. That's who they studied. So like, why in the world, if we're willing to study the people who studied Jesus, are we not willing to study Jesus? It doesn't make much sense. Brent, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Really excited to talk to you today because I am, there are a few people who come to mind when you think about people who have really authentically shared their story from, you know, making money, but also living it in, in faith. And I'm, I'm really curious to dive into the, the faith aspect of your life here today. So thank you for joining. Yeah, I'm thrilled to be on, man. I've been following along and uh, it's a really cool thing you got going. I appreciate that. I'd love to start with meeting with your pastor at 14 years old. <laughs> yeah. Why did you decide to do that? Oh man. Uh, yeah, my God bless my parents because, uh, obviously I was a tough kid. Uh, I set up a meeting, uh, with my pastor. I had questions. I had questions about faith. Uh, we went to a, uh, mainline Presbyterian church in Joplin, Missouri. And, um, the pastor's name was Bill Chrisman, just an amazing guy. I mean, absolutely incredible. Um, but like, I just didn't get it. I didn't, I wasn't into it. Um, it never resonated with me. Um, and I had all these questions about like, who is God and why does he care about me? Why does he care about anything? Where is he? If I can't see him, I mean, just all these things. And so I set up a, uh, unbeknownst to my parents, I set up a meeting. I like reached out to the pastor, like called his office and set out and, and, and set up a meeting. And I told my mom because I couldn't drive, like she had to drive me to the church. And so, you know, of course, when your mother's driving you to the church and your son doesn't tell you why he's meeting with the head pastor, you can imagine um, maybe a little bit of trepidation on her part. And so she, I think she was relieved to find out that I just had questions about, you know, who Jesus is, who, who he, you know, what did he do, all those different things. And um, ultimately, um, pastor is incredible, spent hour plus with me answering all kinds of questions. And I walked out of there kind of deciding that uh, faith life wasn't for me and that um, I would just probably never be satisfied uh, to have the faith that I saw from other people around me and that that was okay and that I was going to move on and I was going to build myself into what I wanted to be and make a bunch of money and be successful. And that was going to be awesome and everything that I wanted. And so that from 14 to, oh gosh, 29 that was my story. Why did that meeting turn into that realization or that uh, conclusion? Well, I mean, I would say now looking back on it, it was God's timing, God's sovereignty that uh, he, you know, God allows circumstances in our lives so that we can bless others with the blessing that we've received. So I can talk to people who are highly successful very intelligent, well-educated, uh, who just think that God's in, you know, sky fairy and who are uh, opposed to the faith because I had to go through that period of, uh, in my life. And if I hadn't gone through that, I couldn't talk to those people. Like I don't do well talking to people who were like, yeah, I grew up in the church. Like I, you know, God's there. I'm just kind of lukewarm on him. I'm like, 
I don't know what to do with you. I have no idea what to say. That wasn't my experience at all. I was an enemy of God. I thought Christians were morons. Uh, I, uh, uh, I ran in the exact opposite direction and sort of militantly so. And so those are the people who I feel like I get to talk to now who I can say, hey, look, I, I get it. Like all the things that are coming out of your mouth, like are things that I've said. So there's really nothing I don't think you can say that's going to offend me or surprise me. And so I think that was, you know, why did that meeting go poorly? Because I think God had a plan for my life and that I would be able to chat with people and and help them at least maybe not come to faith, but at least be softened to the idea that um, they maybe don't have an accurate representation of what reality really is. An accurate representation of what reality is. That That's a, a heavy statement. Uh, but but what practically did your your pastor say in that moment to you where it didn't click with you? And what were the questions you asked, if you can recall? Yeah, I mean, I, I asked pretty basic questions. And I, I, his responses, I remember being like, oh, yeah, that that's, makes sense. I just didn't believe. Like, I didn't have faith. Sure. And so what I was hoping was that I would um, come out of that conversation with an under, not, not an understanding, a head knowledge, but that it was a heart change that he could explain to me how he got his heart into a position to believe what maybe his head thought was true. And that's faith, right? Like, I don't know how else to say it. Like you can, you can intellectually know things, but ultimately, uh, unless they're deeply rooted in who you are, it doesn't really matter. Right. I mean, there's many things that we believe are true that we just act differently on. I mean, this is in the same way that like no one actually can act out on their atheism. Like no one actually believes in atheism, like in their heart. Right. So like if, if you're an atheist and, and, and you said, okay, look, there's nothing more to this life. Like there is no such thing as morality. There's no such thing as objective beauty. There's no such thing as objective meaning. Like go try to live one day of your life like that. It's impossible. It is absolutely impossible to live one single day of your life as if atheism is really true. I would also say, conversely, talk to a lot of people who profess to be Christians and their lives don't look very different than, than the normal person. Now, why is that? Because they may know intellectually certain things, but it's not deeply in their heart, right? And so I think that was the same thing that I was battling back then and really been the battle in my soul ever since. I mean, I would say right now, I have a temptation to want to know about God more than to be with God. And it is, uh, it is, I think the great battle in my soul, right? Cause it's, if I want to know about God, it's about power. It's about knowledge. It's about knowing something, knowing more, you know, knowing better than somebody else, which is a, you know, elevation of me and a, and a demotion of them. Right. Um, and so when I'm just with God, um, it's not about anybody else. And it's not even really about me. It's about him and his great care and love for me. And, it's beautiful, and then I get sucked back into worldly games that give you worldly prizes. How do you navigate through that currently? Of when you know the entire world seems external to want to go to a game of God, like how do you even think about that or, or attempt to do that? Well, I mean, I, look, I, I I've got to reframe what I think the, the game really is. And I mean, I think this is a, this is the daily battle. I mean, all the things that, that the world treasures are gifts, gifts from God. They're good gifts, right? I mean, the definition of an idolatry, like making things an idol is taking a good thing and making it an ultimate thing. So you want the gifts, but not the giver. You want the king without, you want the kingdom without the king. And so that, I mean, that is sort of a, a, the daily battle, I think, of everyone is, 
understanding which is which and what is the point and, you know, really trying to recenter my life on, okay, love God with all your heart, mind, and soul and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Like that is the purest expression. That's what Jesus taught as the summation of the law and the prophets, which is basically his way of saying the old Testament of the Bible, the the Jewish Bible, the Hebrew, Hebrew Bible. And I mean, if you think about what that actually really means, it means I'm focused on God for my identity. I'm an image bearer of the King. I'm an adopted son. Uh, I am um, royalty, uh, but royalty not because of what I can do, but because of who I am. So it's an identity independent of utility. And looking at other people that way is tough, right? Like, do I look at you, for instance, Danny, or on this together and say, okay, what am I trying to get out of this? What am I trying to get out of you? Uh, what do I want for this podcast? Uh, you know, will this, will, will somebody meet me and maybe give me money or sell me their company or, uh, maybe I'll meet a new friend. Right. Um, or do I say, how can I serve you? How can I serve the people that are, that are listening to this? Right. How do I honor them as made as image bearers of God? Right. So it's looking at people is not the means to an end, but the end and of themselves. And that is the ultimate game that pleases God. And really, it's amazing. It's, it, it becomes the most infinite game of all time, the longest time horizon, right? Like if I believe that you and I have eternity together, I believe that you and I are, are going to make great things. And this is the idea of, I mean, I had so many screwed up ideas of heaven, what I thought heaven was. Like heaven was never attracted to me. We're going to be this disembodied like spirit ghost thing with like harps and clouds. And do you know that that's nowhere in the Bible? That is, that is a completely fictionalized media version of something that really doesn't exist. What God says is he's going to bring heaven to earth. And that actually our job in between the sort of the, the ultimate bringing of heaven to earth is for us to bring heaven to earth right now. And so my job today is with everyone I interact with, including with you, to bring heaven to earth. Am I going to do that? I don't know. I've got a great, a great, uh, great battle waging in my soul, right? Am I going to, is it going to be about me, about what I can get? Am I going to ask you, am I okay? And am I asking myself, am I okay? Or, and I would say that is, you know, Blaise Pascal would call that incurvature where you're curved in on yourself. Um, or am I outwardly focused? Am I not worried? Am I unconcerned about myself? How do I look? How do I sound? Am I using the right words? Am I stumbling? And am I more concerned about you, which I'm trying to be, but it's hard. You said that at, at 28 or 29, that was a, a big turning point for you. And I'm yeah. curious why. Well, so um, to back up, at 26, I would say 26, 27, I was, I was at peak enemy with God. Like I, I would actively uh, criticize and make fun of Christians um, I would, uh, I was trying desperately to build myself into something. I was trying to make as much money as I possibly could, uh, in an effort to be okay. I don't know how else to say it. I wasn't okay. I didn't feel okay. I was trying to fill my life with as much food and drink and sex and money and power and fame uh, I was just desperate. I was desperate to hold on to anything that would make me okay. And if I was God, I would have smited me. Like that's how I would have treated me. I would have said, 
Uh, yeah, you are so far out in left field. Uh, you are an enemy of mine. I'm going to take everything away from you that, that you even have. All the good gifts that you've been given, I'm going to remove all those from your life. Almost like Job, if you're familiar with the story of Job in the, in the, in the Old Testament. Um, he's a man who's a great wealth and, and honor, who had lots of children, and uh, God removed all those things from his life to show him that it was God who he wanted and then, and then chose to bless him after that. But I would have done that to me. I would have made me Job, right? Um, but God did the exact opposite with me. God gave me far more than I ever could have dreamed to help me realize that that wasn't it. So I found myself at 28, 29, we were coming off of uh, being 28 on the Inc. 500, fastest growing company in Missouri history, um, making a bunch of money, having awards. I was invited to the White House as like a young entrepreneur um, and small group of people, um, was kind of becoming more nationally known, um, had an Inc. column, had a Forbes column. Um, it kind of, I was, I was becoming somebody. I was trying to desperately to build myself into someone, right? And everything tasted gray. Everything sucked. I had a beautiful wife who loved me. I told her I didn't love her. It's horrible, horrible. I had friends who really enjoyed being around me. I didn't enjoy being around them. I didn't care about anybody. I didn't care about myself. Everything tasted great. Great bottles of wine. Tasted like wine. Great food. Yeah, it was a little too salty or not salty enough. Nothing was nothing was good. Everything was gray. And um, man, I was I was kind of at my wits' end. I was like, I don't know what to do. Like, I this is it. Like, this is life. You make a bunch of money and you bounce around, interacting with people, interacting with you eat some stuff, drink some stuff. And then, and then we die. That was it. So I just was, I was at rock bottom. I just didn't know what to do. I had this constant existential dread. I woke up every morning with sweaty armpits, sweaty palms. Um, I wasn't okay. And I had no idea how to be okay. And then the strangest thing happened, which was God started putting, well, now I would say this, I wouldn't say at the time, I started having these people in my life that I saw who lived completely differently, lived free, were non-anxious, generous with no expectation of reciprocity. They were unconcerned, but deeply concerned. It's like this paradox, right? Like they, they loved people. They loved the poor. They loved the marginalized they weren't judgmental. They were kind and generous. And it was, and I started meeting these people and I was like, okay, what do you have that I don't? And they're like, what do you mean? And I was like, well, you live so much differently. Like you're not that much older than me. Like how, how are you so relaxed? And they're like, oh, it's just God, Jesus. That's who I follow. And I was like, you gotta be freaking kidding me. Jesus, really? How, how in the world, like, how does that work? And slowly over time. There was a group of people um, who I am deeply indebted to, uh, who surrounded me and bought me lunch and bought me books and um, <laughs> uh, were way, way too kind to a very arrogant, condescending, judgmental, arrogant asshole. And uh, it it totally transformed my heart. Uh, all of a sudden, God went from being in a possibility to being a plausibility, to being a probability, 
to being pretty sure that that story was correct. And then once I realized that I was like, oh my gosh, everything has to change. Everything in my life has to change. If, if I believe I've, I, I've always been intellectually honest, you know, that's the one thing that I would say, um, is consistent between my atheism and, and now my, my, my faith in following Jesus is I just want to know the truth wherever the truth leads me. I just want to know the truth. And I thought the truth led me to think there was no God and that it was all a fairy tale and a really bad fairy tale. Like, like church from the outside looking in looks like a terrible country club. Like it's like really high dues and not much fun. And so, you know, I just didn't want that. And I thought that, I thought that I knew what Jesus stood for. I thought that you had to work really hard and be moral and, um, you kind of grit your teeth and mm, I really want to do all these things that I can't do now. And, but you know, it's for God. And that that would then, if I did enough of those things that, that God would bless me in this life and the next, that's what I thought. That's what I thought it was about. And I think there's a lot of people who go to church every Sunday who think that's what it's about. And literally, that's the exact opposite of what Jesus taught. What Jesus taught is you are known, you are loved, it is finished, you are fully known and fully accepted. All you have to do is receive the gift that I'm giving you. That's the good news, right? That was called the gospel, which literally means good news. And there's nothing you can do to move outside my love and nothing you can do to earn it. So religion teaches, do these things and I'll bless you in this life and the next. Jesus taught you're already blessed. I'll change you over time. You don't need to come cleaned up. Like there's an amazing story about the prodigal son. I don't know. This is probably one of the more well-known stories in the, in the Bible, right? There's two brothers. One goes out, takes his, takes his inheritance, demands it early from his father, takes it out, squanders it, right? Spends it living like Dan Blazarian, right? Everything you can imagine back, back in the day lives high on the hog, has a bunch of sex, does a bunch of drugs. I don't know, whatever you do back then. Right. And ultimately realizes he's, he's, he's in destitute. And he says, I'd have nothing. Maybe if I came back home, my father would accept me as a slave. Maybe I could work as a slave because being a slave to my father in my father's household is better than what I have now. And he comes back home and he's broken. His sandals are all torn. He has nothing. He literally has nothing. And his father sees him coming and yells to everyone in the house. My son is home. Kill the fatted calf. We tonight we celebrate because my son was lost and now he's found. And the story of that, like what you think the story of that is, is God's always welcoming. There's no, you can never be, you can never out sin God's grace, right? Which is this beautiful story. It's this amazing story. And for me, it was deeply resonant, right? Of just because I was an enemy of God, just because I made fun of Christians, I wasn't too far gone, right? I mean, the story of Paul is another example of this. You can't out Paul. Paul literally killed Christians before he became Saul. He was Saul of Tarsus and then became Paul. He literally killed Christians and then became the person who wrote most of the New Testament. Um, but the story of the, the prodigal son then has this other twist, which is this older brother who I would call is the religious brother who did everything that the, the father told him. He was diligent. And when he arrived home, he was out in the field, he was working. And he saw this huge party and he said, what the heck's going on? Like, what, what, what happened? Like, why are we having a party? And one of the servants said, well, your brother's home. And he was so angry and upset. He was pissed. He said, wait a minute. I've never had a party thrown in my honor. And my, my brother demanded half his inheritance and went away and squandered it. And here I am. What about me? Like, Why? And his heart was so hardened. And I think this is the tension 
that Jesus solves, right? We all have a tendency to live one of two ways, either as the older brother or as the younger brother, and sometimes we live as both. We live as the younger brother and go out and take our inheritance and squander it and live licentiously, right? And go out and just any pleasure, anything that that gives us short-term pleasure, we're just going to do. And then we sometimes live as the older brother or have a tendency more to live as the older brother, which is in judgment of everyone else. I'm the right person. I do good things. I'm a good person. And you know what Jesus said to both of you? You're both lost. And arguably, we don't know actually how the story ends. Arguably, the older brother, arguably the highly religious person is lost even more than the person who's visiting prostitutes and doing drugs and squandering everything. And man, stories like that, golly, lit my heart on fire. Why is that? Why is the older brother uh, even worse than the younger brother? Well, in the story, I'd encourage you actually to read it. The story is incredible. Um, the older brother, so the younger brother, the, the story ends with him in celebration, in unity with his father, in great, this great celebration, embracing his father and his father embracing him and welcoming him back home and said, hey, you put on new shoes, you put on a robe on him, give him my, give him my ring, my son has been found, Right. And then you've got the older brother, the story ends with him outside of the party, unwilling to come in and the father begging him to come home. Now the older brother is so far away and the younger brother is now close. And it's a story of our lives. I mean, it's a story that honestly, like it is so hard to go from an atheism that I would call, I was like older brother atheism. And my tendency is to become older brother Christian, Right. In what sense? I mean, I look around me at the folly that goes on and I can say, I get it. I've been there, but golly, you're hurting yourself. I mean, somebody asked me the other day, they said, why do you care so much about talking about Jesus? And I said, well, (laughs) uh, I don't get like bonus points or anything. It's not like I get brownie points from God. Like I don't, it's not like I get special perks or something, right? As a a result of talking about it. Um, The only way I can describe it or the the way I, I think it best fits in my heart is what if, what if I saw that you had cancer and you were dying and I saw that I had the cure for cancer because I too had cancer and I just saw you suffer in silence. Would that be the loving thing to do? Would that be treating you as my neighbor, treating you as myself, how I would want to be treated? No, if you believe me, if I've got cancer and you've got the cure, I want you to tell me about it. I want you to give it to me. That's how I feel about Jesus. Like I had the worst cancer you could possibly have. Like that was a path that led to me probably ending my life. That led to me being nothing within a very short period of time. And I feel like I had the cure found me. I didn't find the cure. The cure found me. But how could I not talk to you about the cure if I think you've got cancer too? So what exactly did this group of people do to you other than give you books and attention and resources that allowed you to break free? Yeah. I mean, they had the hard conversations with me, told me I was an idiot, told me I didn't know what I was talking about and were uh, smarter than me, more thoughtful than me, more well-researched than me. Um, They were, they were lovingly, kindly. There was never a whiff of condescension. There was never a whiff of judgment. It was purely for my good, not for their good. Um, they were not in it to win an argument. They were in it to show me the truth. I'll never forget it. 
Yeah, man. It's uh, what do you do if you don't have people like that in your own life? Well, they found me. I didn't find them. Yeah. So, so. I, I, I was so broken and, um, I was crying out for something. I was desperate and God will respect. So, so, so maybe we can talk about free will and God's sovereignty, right? Um, there's this very weird tension, uh, inexplicable tension in the story between God is stands outside of time, wrote himself into his own story in Jesus, right? Is all knowing, all powerful, created the universe and he somehow weaves everything into his plan and his story, everything. And we're told we have true objective free will. So how's that possible? How could I have free will and God have complete sovereignty? And it breaks our brains. It doesn't make sense, right? The, the best way I think you can, you can look at this is, so light is both a wave and a particle. So it's both a wave. When you look at it one way, it's a wave and has properties of a wave. And then you look at it a completely different way. It has way to, uh, properties of a particle. And we don't understand how it has both those properties. doesn't make any sense. But the reality is it does. And God's sovereignty is absolute. And we have absolute free will. And, and God will respect our free will. So, you know, if, if you don't have free will, you don't have true love. And if you think about what God, who God really is, is just love. That's what it is. That's where we get true love. This is the idea of agape love. So there's two types of love. So roundabout way of answering your question, but there's um, a, a famous Jewish rabbi calls it fish love, which is you get a piece of fish at a restaurant and you say, oh, this fish is amazing. I love this fish. What is that type of love? I love what the fish does for me. I love the way the fish makes me feel. I love the way the fish satisfies me. That's what most people think is love. That's what I thought love was prior to meeting Jesus. That's worldly love. It is what you can do for me. It's performative love. It is a, it is a marriage where both partners say, Hey, look, we're going to come together because we think we're better together. Right? You give me sex. You help. We share rent. We like being around each other. You get to talk to me. I get to talk to you. Yeah. We, we have this, we have this arrangement, but if that arrangement changes and, and look, you may not be the best fit. Well, then things are up in the air. Should we get divorced? Should we separate? Get messy with kids, right? That's not that's that's a worldly love. That's not what Jesus talks about in the Bible. There's a there's a biblical love called agape love, which is a, a love in service of the other, for the good of the other, unconcerned with self. It's a love that doesn't take; it gives. That's the love that found me, and my free will was telling God, I didn't want you for the longest time. You know, this idea C.S. Lewis talks about the gates of hell are locked from the inside. So hell is just getting what you, what you really want. And for people who don't want God, it's just getting what they want. Like God will honor their sovereignty. God will honor their free will. So it's not a place of torment in the sense of God punishing people. The punishment is not getting God. And by the way, this is true. I would argue that, that my life had descended into, into a form of hell prior to finding God, prior to God finding me. It was a very nice hell. It was a luxurious hell. It was a hell that I had a lot of autonomy in. But look, I had reached a point where 
I'd come to the end of myself, or at least the end of part of myself. And I think this is the journey now with Jesus is there are so many parts of me that are still yet unredeemed, that are still mine, that I still declare dominion over, that are unsurrendered to who God is and what God wants for my life, that that's a continual exploration. I think that God has to reveal it slowly to us because there's so much work to be done. It runs so deep that that's the beautiful thing about the, the the dance and the game that we get to play for the rest of our lives is finding all these areas of unredeemed and areas that are, that I'm, that I am, um, I'm not loving with an agape love that I'm self-centered, that I'm self-focused, self-aggrandizing, self-protecting, uh, because I don't truly believe. Right. And that's where it's this most beautiful thing, but you got to open yourself up and, um, be open to receiving the gift. God's not somebody who you find. God's somebody who finds you once you open yourself up to it. And so for people that don't have that in their lives, I didn't have it in my life. God will find you. I mean, somebody challenged me one time. They said, Brent, have you ever gotten on your knees and asked God to reveal himself to you? And I was like, yeah, sure. Of course. And they said, really? When did that happen? And I was like, yeah, I never did that. That's true. I never did that. And they said, well, why don't you, why don't you do that and see what happens? And I was like, oh my gosh, these Christians, man, it's all this, all this magical stuff that's going to happen, right? Like as if I'm going to get on my knees and then God's going to reveal himself to me. And I remember myself, it was like maybe two or three, maybe four days later. Um, I found myself with like nothing to do. I was bored out of my mind, no one around. And I just had this overwhelming urge to get on my knees and ask God to reveal himself to me. And I was like, this is weird. Like, I, well, I'll just kind of, I mean, Look, they asked me, I want to be intellectually honest about it. I want to be able to, if I run into that same guy again, I want to be able to tell him, yeah, I did it. And obviously it didn't work. And so I remember uh, exactly where I was. I got on my knees and, um, I prayed to a God I didn't think was real. And I said, God, like, all I want to know is if you're real, if you're not like, leave me alone. Right. Well, I guess there'd be nothing. Right. And if you're there for God's sakes, like, I want to know you, like, I want to know, I just want to know the truth. And man, something broke. It wasn't, it wasn't like a booming voice of God. It wasn't like a, um, it wasn't like a transformation. It was like a tiny little crack opened in my hard heart. And there was just enough room to let a little light in. And I felt just a little bit different. And then all of a sudden people started appearing in my life and it just, their words had a sweetness to them. They're there was something different about them. And that's when I started asking people like, what do you have that I don't like? I'm jealous. Like I want the thing. How do you have such peace? Like, are you on drugs all the time? Like, like what's going on? Right. And they're like, no, this guy, Jesus. I'm like, Oh, dang it. And then I started thinking back like, well, I don't know. I asked for God to reveal himself. Maybe he is revealing himself through this. And then that's the winding, messy, ugly journey that it all always takes. It's not a straight line. So, so then what happened at, 30 or, or after you had met this group and you integrated into it, like how did that unfold? Um, yeah, I mean, it was just, it was a lot of, it was a lot of struggle. It was a lot of two steps forward, one step back. It was a lot of, I mean, it wasn't like I immediately came to faith. I, um, I was like, again, like the, my journey is one of impossibility to plausibility, to probability, to high likelihood, and then ultimately to faith. Um, so I was moving along a spectrum and I had so many 
misinformed views of of what was in the Bible, uh, of what God's revelation was, of who God was, what he was, what he wanted from me, what he didn't care about, what he cared about. I, I, I had so many, I mean, most of my, I feel like most of my discipling, if you want to call it that, was from popular media, which has this like lily white Southern Baptist view. Everyone's kind of mildly racist, you know, um, everyone's got, you know, the secret sin they hide. It's a highly cynical view. And look, there's a lot of that in the church. I mean, look, people are not designed. We're not built to carry the burden of large sums of money, fame, or power. So anyone you see who's carrying those, they're either getting ready to fall or in the process of falling. And you can paper it over it, but man, like it, it it's happening or it's going to happen. It's just a matter of time. Falling so, where? I mean, falling in terms of like their lives are going to be a mess, a disaster. They're going to make a, they're going to make a mess of things. They're going to, um, it's the pastor, you know, the, the sort of the rote, uh, characterization of the pastor who's talking about adultery on Sunday and then having sex with prostitutes on Monday. Right. Like there's a lot of things that happen that when God, God wants nothing more than to find people who can bear, bear authority in his name and point back to him. And most people can't do it. And it's only by God's grace that I think some people are capable. I've met, I've met very few people who haven't gained large sums of money, fame, or power and not lost their minds. And why do you think that is exactly? Because we're not built for it. We're not built to be gods. We can't bear the weight of it. Having, having fame, money, or power makes you a god? Well, I mean, what? so it, you have authority over people's lives. You can control your environment or at least pretend to. I mean, look, if like if you're wealthy in our society, really any society in the history of the world, you can manipulate your circumstances and to where you think you don't need God. Right. I mean, especially modern day. Yeah. Right. I mean, go to, go to any major city and look at the secular culture, whatever you want, you want, uh, whatever delivered to your door in 10 minutes, you can pretty much get anything delivered to your door in 10 minutes. And when I say anything, I mean anything, if you really want it delivered to your door in 10 minutes, kind of sounds like God to me. Hmm. I mean, people try yeah, to live forever, right? Yeah. What do you think of that? People living forever. Well, I think we're all going to live forever. I think we have immortal souls. So I think we're, we're on that track already. Um, I don't think our bodies are designed to live forever. And I think it's a, um, I think it's fool's gold and folly to think that, that we're going to, um, we're going to transgress that, but I think we can continue to extend our lives. And I think living healthier, longer lives. It's great. It's fantastic. God values life. There's real tragedy in death. If we're living forever, mm -hmm. are we already where we are immortal to some extent? What What is the tragedy of death? Shouldn't that be a, a celebration of passing along your to the next place you go? Yeah. Well, so if you think about it, this goes back to sort of uh, the Genesis creation story, right? Um, before there was sin and death, um, there was no cruelty, no tragedy. Um, we were built to live forever in in this world. And that's where heaven comes back to earth, right? So we don't exactly know the, the Bible's unclear about how this happens, but the heaven ultimately returning the second coming of Christ, which you probably heard about in movies. And there's always like, you know, uh, sort of myth and fairy tales that spin off of the story of revelation, right? The, the last book of the Bible. Um, 
And uh, heaven coming back to earth, I, I believe, is a, is a real thing. And at, at that point, every tear will be wiped away. Again, I quote C.S. Lewis. He was such a huge impact on my life. You know, he says it's where the, all the bad things and sad things come untrue, right? So somehow all that sin and death is unwound, all the tragedy. Um, this is the justice of God. Like This is what Martin Luther King talked about, justice rolling down like a river, right? Which talks about in the Old Testament. Like this is the beauty. This is the hope that we carry. Um, but we're going to live forever. We're just either going to live forever in a redeemed earth with redeemed bodies. We're still going to have jobs. Like this is, this is again, not a disembodied heaven, heart playing, weird ghosty creature type thing. This is heaven coming to earth. Um, Tolkien uh, has this incredible short story called Leaf by Niggle. Um, oh, it's the most beautiful. I remember when I read it for the first time, it was unbelievable. It's this man who he, he, he desperately has his vision of what he wants to paint. He wants to paint this, this beautiful tree, this like, like enormous tree. And he gets one leaf done in his lifetime, one leaf. And he thinks of it as complete failure. One leaf, like no one's going to care. And then he moves on in the redeemed earth, heaven comes to earth. And he gets to see that leaf in the fullness of the tree. Right. So all of our work that we're doing today matters deeply. Again, C.S. Lewis talks about the people who do most in this life care most about the next. Right. So it's not this idea that like, oh, everything's going to burn. Like this is a, it's called actually left behind theology. Um, it's incredibly destructive. It's a theological misunderstanding. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a poor reading of what's there. It doesn't make actually much sense, but it's this idea that like, oh, well, the only things that are going to not burn are the souls of men and the word of God. Like you'll hear that kind of in some Christian circles being talked about. So kind of like none of this stuff really matters. The only two things that matter are the word of God and, and, and the souls of people, right? The problem with that is that like, that's not biblical at all. And we're called to bring heaven to earth. And so that can give you an idea that like, oh, we shouldn't care about the environment. We really shouldn't care about hardly anything. Just those two things. Like who cares what you do for a living? Who cares how you add value to this world? Right? That doesn't matter. All that matters is the souls of men and the, and, and the word of God. The exact opposite is true. Everything matters. That's that leaf by niggle. Tolkien's view of that is like just this one little leaf you get to see in its fullness. And it's the most beautiful thing you've ever seen. You get to see your work extended into eternity. So long way of saying, yes, we're immortal. And again, this is the choosing. The gates of hell are locked from the inside. You're either choosing to surrender your life to uh, say, I, I am not a good God. Um, I want to bow down. I want to bend the knee to the one true King and I want to follow Jesus or, um, or not. And that's the, that's the sovereignty we all get. When you picture God, what does that look like to you? Yeah, it's, it, I mean, I love, again, the, the, the father and the prodigal son is, is the picture. That's the image that I have now in my head. It's God open arms running towards me, uh, full of love, full of compassion, full of understanding, wiping away my tears saying, my son is found. He is here. Let's celebrate. Like we are to be, we are to be honored and celebrated. Um, and, um, that's why we're made. I mean, we're made in the image of God. Like this is what it partially means. Right. When you grew up, it, I assume because you met with a pastor that you had some um, you grew up with faith in some respect. Is that true? I mean, I told my mom, I didn't believe in God when I was nine years old. Like, I remember exactly where 
where I was. I was uh, at Carl Richards Bowling Alley in Joplin, Missouri. We were driving in her, I don't know, 10, 12-year-old Lincoln boat thing. I don't know what you called those cars back then. Enormous cars. Um, and uh, yeah, I remember my brother was in the back seat, and I told my mom, I was like, I don't think I believe in God. My like brother starts crying, and yeah, it was like it was quite the mess. So I mean, look, I I, I was never I was not endowed with faith from a from a young age. Uh, there's a lot of people's stories who are who are the exact opposite of me, who said, "Hey, look, I was five years old, six years old. God got a hold of me and never let go, and that's amazing. Like I I think that's a beautiful story. That's just not my story. Right, but if your brothers cry, then it mu- you must have been going to church. Or have some belief at that age, like yeah. everyone around you had some belief, and yeah, yeah. I think it depends on. Uh, so I, I, um, it's always hard to talk about because, like, uh, uh, any view I have of what I experience is always going to be jaded, right? Like, I mean, kids, like, and the stories we tell ourselves, like, I don't know. All I know is that I didn't have, I had never heard the gospel, the the good news of who Jesus really was, until I was in my late twenties and early thirties. I thought, again, I thought Christianity was religion. I thought Christianity was like every other religion. It was just, okay, who's, who's got the right view and you do certain things, you know, you can, you know, you can kind of control God by if you, you know, if you're good enough, if you give enough, if you say the right things, don't use cuss words, don't have sex with somebody you shouldn't have sex with, do these certain things like be moral, be good. And God will bless you in this life and next. And again, that's just not the gospel. And that is unfortunately where you get in a lot of, it's called works driven religion, right? It's just not the gospel. And so I think there's a lot of people who I viewed as trapped in the wrong story. I just, I knew it was the wrong story. I just didn't know what the right story was. And so my choice wasn't between who Jesus really was and who I thought he was right. Like it was, it was basically the choice between religion and, and atheism is kind of the way I thought about it. Like, I didn't think there was a, there was another way. So I chose atheism because it made a lot more sense to me than religion, which actually, to be honest, I respect people who are atheists more than I respect people who are quote unquote cultural Christians. I have not much tolerance for cultural Christianity. Why is that? Because they're sort of knowingly living a lie. Like cultural Christianity is like, I like the fruits of Christian, like this is, this is like weird, like MAGA culture where it's like, I really, I don't believe Jesus is who he says he is. I'm kind of lukewarm. Like, yeah, Jesus is a cool guy. Like, it's like, uh, what's the Will Ferrell movie? Uh, he's a race car driver. What's his name? Talladega uh, Nights. Talladega Nights. Ricky Bobby. Like, I worship baby Jesus. You know, the little baby Jesus, eight pounds, six ounces, baby Jesus, you know, that type of thing. Like Jesus is like a hood ornament in, in people's lives. It's kind of like this little totem that you rub, like a little step stool that you stand on. Like, yeah. Need a little bit of Jesus, you know, because a little bit of Jesus is better than not. It's like that is cultural Christianity. That is, again, you want the kingdom without the king. You want the gifts without the giver. Like you, you, you don't center your life. Like Jesus didn't leave room for lukewarm religion. Like there's nothing in, if you actually study who Jesus is, you should think he's a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord of the universe. Like those are your options. Anybody who's anything other than has decided one of those three things hasn't done the work. And by the way, this is a challenge that I've, I've, I've given to quite a few people at this point, which is a challenge that really resonated with me. Why do we study the greats? 
Like, why do we study, I don't know, Abraham Lincoln or Napoleon or Einstein or whoever, right? Like, why do we study them? We likely believe they have some wisdom to give us. Yeah, like we think that they can help us be great. Do you know who they studied? They studied Jesus. That's who they studied. So like, why in the world, if we're willing to study the people who studied Jesus, are we not willing to study Jesus? It doesn't make much sense. So I think that's where like so many people have this um, modern media distorted view of, of, of who Jesus was. Like I could care less about even the term Christianity, like whatever that means, right? I think it's such a loaded term at this point, like evangelical. Like I don't, I don't know what evangelical means at this point. Right. I think it means kind of that you vote Republican. I don't know. I have no idea. I can tell you though, like following Jesus is unbelievably amazing. The man, it, he, he was, <laughs> he taught for three years in the middle of nowhere where there was no way for a message to get out. And within a very short period of time, it overtook the entire Roman empire. Like Caesar ran the most powerful organization in the history of the world that easily and quickly succumbed to Jesus, who is a poor itinerant teacher who taught very little for three years to very few people in the middle of nowhere. Like, wouldn't you just want to know how he did it? Like, let's just say all you want is, is money, fame, and power. Wouldn't you think that maybe studying the best leader of all time would be a great way to Figure it out for yourself. Like Jesus is who Napoleon studied. Yeah. So anyway, that's, I, I guess at the end of the day, like those are the things that help me break some of my atheism and my confidence in my uh, view of what I thought reality really was. You said there, there was a challenge there. The challenge is to study Jesus. When you studied Jesus, what did you learn that surprised you? I mean, almost everything. I didn't, I mean, I like the, the Bible stories. Um, so take the story of Jonah, right? This is one of the more fam famous stories in the Bible, like Jonah and the whale, right? So it's the guy who, the storybook version, the kid's kind of sanitized version is that uh, Jonah gets eaten by a whale and has great faith and God spits him out. And so like, you know, anything that you face in life that's hard, that looks like you're going to get eaten by a whale, like just have faith. That's not the story of Jonah at all. <laughs> like go and read Jonah. Jonah is a story of God directly talking to one of his prophets, like directly audibly talking to one of his prophets and his prophet saying, I don't care what you say, God, I'm going to go the exact opposite direction. I will not do your will. What would you expect from God? You'd expect him to wreck Jonah's life. You'd expect him to humble him. And he does, but he does it in a way that's super loving and kind. He does it in a way that protects Jonah. The whale is actually sent not as the enemy of Jonah. The whale is sent to actually protect Jonah. The whale saves Jonah. Getting eaten by a whale, literally getting eaten, was a savior to Jonah. And then Jonah says, you're right. Okay, I can't outrun God. God is sovereign. I am not. God is God and I am not. Okay, God, I will go. I'll do what you ask me to do. And he, so what God was asking him to do is go to Nineveh, which is kind of like, um, it'd be the equivalent of, uh, an American being asked to go to, I don't know, whatever the seat of power of ISIS is. Like that would be the equivalent. 
And it's like, well, God, I like, why would you want to bless those people? Why would you want to bless ISIS? Like, I don't want ISIS to repent and, and, and to, to be saved. Like, I don't want ISIS to know the love of God. Like there are enemies. They murder our children. They bomb our buildings. What does God say? That's not for you to decide. Like you, you thinking that I don't want to bless others is fundamentally misunderstanding what you have. Do you think I blessed you because of you? Do you think that you deserved my blessing? That's not grace. That's not what God does. God's mercy and grace is undeserved. That is the definition of grace. It's undeserved. And so the story of Jonah is, he says, no, I won't bless the people that you asked me to bless. Because it's a hard heart. And then God says, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to help you to see clearly in a loving, kind, protective way that looks at times like tough circumstances. And they were. I'm going to, I'm going to get you to understand how I want you to bless these other people. And even after that, Jonah says, I'm, I'm, I will go, I will go to Nineveh, but I'm not, I'm not going to do a good job, uh, intentionally. And I really hope that you don't, that they don't repent. And you know, what he does, he goes there. He basically says very few things. And even the King of Nineveh says, uh, I repent. Everyone's in sackcloth and ashes. Everyone's repenting of their sin. And it brings a whole people to God. And do you know what Jonah's reaction is? Of course you're thinking, well, Jonah's reaction is, oh God, I finally get it. Oh man, I've been such an idiot. You're right. I deserve grace. I don't deserve grace. They didn't deserve grace. I'm, you know, it's just, it's purely out of your love and mercy that I am saved. And so, you know, thank you God for saving them and showing me the error in my way. No, that's not actually what happens. So what happens at all? Jonah is pissed. Jonah goes outside the city and laments to God, says, I cannot believe you'd save them. How dare you? And then the story ends. That's what's so amazing about the Bible is we have all these ideas of who God is, what God's really saying. And then you read the Bible and you're like, there's no way this is fiction. I mean, I was one of the first things that I, that I started actually reading the Bible was I was like, okay, these are all fairy tales. It's kind of like Grimm Brothers. You know, there's like, you know, Mesopotamian ancient history, the Romans and the Greek gods and all this stuff. Like, it's kind of like fun stories, you know, that, you know, fairy book kind of type stories. And then you read the Bible and the Bible is filled with awful people, really messy, terrible, obstinate, sinful, horrible people who God uses despite who they are. Does that ring a bell? Doesn't that give hope to us? Like, doesn't that mean that, that, that all the terrible things that we've done, all the things that we've, that we know we've done wrong, all the mistakes we've made, if God only works through idiots, then maybe I've got a shot. And it's not fiction. Like if you're going to create a story that was like, okay, I want to create a religion. I want to, I want to, you know, make up a fairy tale that, you know, people are going to give me power and authority because I made, you know, made this new religion up. Like you would never, ever, ever make up the stories that are in the Bible because they do not make the people look good. They do not give power to the people. It is the exact opposite. It shows over and over again, this cycle in the Old Testament and the story in the New Testament too, but especially in the Old Testament is this repeated cycle of people getting themselves into trouble, God rescuing them, them forgetting and getting themselves into trouble again, and God rescuing them again. I mean, it's literally this circular pattern over and over and over again. I don't know. Does that sound familiar? It sounds familiar in my life. That happened last week to me. Happened the week before to me. Happened the week before that to me. 
So like that is the story of who we are. And that is the grace and mercy of, and love of God. Where does one uh, begin to start with this? I've never read the Bible. I've never read anything. Like I, I feel overwhelmed when looking at it, you know, yeah. like there's so much there. There's so many stories there. Like, where do you even begin? Uh, you be- begin, I think, um, in the New Testament is where I'd recommend you be in. There's four gospels, uh, four accounts of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, I'd probably choose Luke, especially if you're a reader. It's a little bit longer, a little more detailed. Um, each one slightly to a different audience and for a slightly different purpose. Um, and you got to remember that what's in the Bible. Actually, I think it was John who said at the end of his, he said, look, entire the entire earth would be filled with volumes if we accounted for everything Jesus did. So the, so the idea is not to read this and say, okay, these are the only things Jesus did. These are every story in the Bible is emblematic and trying to communicate something, a much deeper meaning and purpose. So you slowly get through and say, okay, I just want to first read through and say, who, who is Jesus? What did he do? What did he stand for? Like if I, if I heard about him, what would people say about him? Who was he upset with? Who did he treat gently? Who did he, who was he judgmental about? What did he care about? And does that resonate with me? Like, why should I care? And what does he claim? Who does he claim to be? What does he claim to be able to do? Just start there and see where it takes you. That's what would be my advice. And what are what are some of the the resources that that helped you out while you were going through that period of of learning? Yeah, um, I mean, there's so many books written. I mean. Th- there are uh, 10,000 words on every single word in the Bible. I mean, every single phrase, every single thing. I mean, it has been researched, you know, 10,000 ways. I mean, seriously. So there are, look, there's tons of Bible apps out there. Um, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of help that you can get, but ultimately you've got to start from a position of genuine intellectual curiosity and a heart posture of openness. I mean, I what I would say you're going to get whatever you, you want to find there. If you, if you're, if you're going at it and like I did, look, I read the Bible, uh, all the way through as a sophomore or junior in high school, just to double check that there was nothing there. You know what I found? Nothing there. <laughs> right. Why'd you do that? Cause I felt, I mean, again, I've always had this tug of war. I've always felt this longing in my soul. But I just, I didn't know where to get it fulfilled. I didn't know. I mean, I just, I, I don't, I don't understand how people live, uh, without truth. Like, I don't get it. I don't, I don't understand how, how, how you could go along life and just kind of eat and drink and be merry and like, yeah, we're all going to die, but like, eh, whatever. It was interesting. You know, like it just never is, is never resonated with me. I've always been somebody who I want to know the truth and I want to pursue the truth and I want to um, explore what I think is true and not true. And so, um, what I would say is that, uh, we don't see the world as, as the world is, we see the world as we are. And so if you're open to something, that's what I would call intellectual honesty. You're just really want to know the truth. Then I think you'll have a lot of revelation. If you've decided who God is, who Jesus is, what the Bible is, you're probably not going to find much there. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm uh, I'm curious to to look into it and to uh, 
to explore because I, it's an interesting part of life, you know, that there it's, it's so interesting because there's so much we're we're plopped down in this floating rocket space, right? We have no idea why we're here, how we got here, what happened before, what will happen after. And, um, there, there's so much you don't know that it feels overwhelming at times. Um, just like about like little things, like I'm just looking out into buildings, I'm like, how did that get made? Right? Like looking at cars, like, how do you do this in a car? How do you do that? And then there's like our own minds. And then like, and this podcast is just an attempt to learn a little bit more about life on this floating rock in space to get new perspectives and travel. And sometimes I just feel so overwhelmed with like, there's so much, where do you even begin? You know, and uh, I think the Bible has, it seems like been a a resource for you and and so many others to give you an anchor into what is going on. Yeah. I just want to encourage you, man. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I came on your podcast when you asked me is because I see a true, genuine desire to know the truth in you and to explore. And so it's beautiful. Like, I just want to encourage you. Like it, it can feel overwhelming. Um, maybe that overwhelming leads you to know that there's something beyond it. Right. I mean, like we yearn for things that we were made for. And if your desire is to know and understand this world, maybe there's real learning and understanding. Maybe there's something behind it. Right. And that's what I hear you saying is like, look, I want to, I want to learn. How does, how does that building get there? Like, why are we the way we are? I mean, look, the edifices of Western culture are all built on Jesus. Full stop. Like we are living in a world that Jesus transformed. And if you go back and look at the customs of practices, um, the, you know, how Rome was when Jesus came along, it looks very, very, very similar to highly progressive urban secular culture. Very similar. Like all that stuff is not new. Like progressivism these days is not progressive. It is highly regressive. Go back to Rome. They were very, very tolerant. If you were part of a certain class of people of basically anything you wanted to do. I mean, look like they were anything, anything goes, anything goes sexually, anything went, you were free to do anything you wanted, whatever you wanted, however you wanted, right? Like, the world we live in is a world transformed by Jesus for the good. And so if you, if you're interested in this world, you should be interested in how we got here because there is a, um, there's a lot of history there. There's a lot of learning to be done. Yeah, definitely. It's interesting though, because, you know, whenever someone loves something, they start to orient and see their world around that thing, right? Like you made the the claim and it's likely a true claim that everything we see around us was built with Jesus in mind, mm-hmm. whether or not you know it. And But the same is true like about caffeine. Like let's say someone really likes coffee, right? They're like, well, the world was built by coffee. And let's say someone likes mushrooms and they're like, all right, the world was built by psilocybin in some... And I just see that you know, when people love things, they start to see it everywhere. Yeah. Have you noticed that as well? Well, so I would say is um, psilocybin, to my knowledge, has not been uh, 
claimed as the root of, of sort of human rights <laughs> as an example, um, or, you know, coffee. You got to talk as, to Paul Stamets. Yeah, m- maybe. I mean, I've listened to some or of Michael Pollan, you yeah, know, but like, I, yeah, but I, I've listened it's to just based on the person. Yeah, but what I would say is that um, Michael Pollan and Paul, neither of them would say that human rights are based on psilocybin, right? And in all seriousness, I I, I hear what you're saying. Like, I hear, I I get your point. I take your point that, like, it's the endowment effect, right? Once you have something, you see it everywhere, right? Totally get it. Human psychology, all that stuff. I think there's an equivocation that's done. And by the way, I love this type of discussion. I'm not shutting it down. I'm actually opening it up because I really do want to explore this is like, we equivocate things that are just not even in the same universe to be equivocated, right? And that's just not equal, right? And I think this is where people say, well, yeah, Jesus was like a great leader, you know, so was Buddha, right? So was George Washington. Like, why would I care more about Jesus than George Washington? And the answer is, well, Jesus' impact on the earth is like um, 50 billion X what George Washington's impact on the earth has been. And George Washington believed that Jesus was who he says he was and orientated his whole life and actually uh, performed a lot of the things, did a lot of the things with an eye towards serving Jesus. So like to equivocate and say, uh, you know, look like, yeah, once, once you love coffee, coffee's everywhere. And, and the world has been certainly transformed by coffee, of course, right? Like there's economic transformation, there's social change, of course, all these things, but like literally the entire idea of human rights, like when I say this, like literally there's no other source of human rights outside of the idea of the image of God. Like literally when I say that there is no, there was no idea and even if you still look into other cultures today, they, they're confused at Western human rights. They're like, what are you talking about? Like, that doesn't make any sense. Like, why are, why is everyone equal? Because we're not, we're not equal. Like people have different levels of intelligence and athletic ability and different. I mean, so, so this idea that everyone's equal is, is not obvious. Why is that obvious? I mean, you have, you have atheists who say like, there's no, there's no difference between animals and humans. And in fact, Paul Singer would say, uh, uh, that animals actually in some ways are more intelligent than babies, human babies. And maybe they should actually carry more value. I don't know. Like, like when you, we gotta be careful not to overlook the treasure that's in front of us and, and the impact that Jesus had because other things also have had impact. I think it's the recency bias that we have of things that are right in front of us look a lot bigger than things that have been in the past, which is also another human bias. So I would just challenge you is like, when you make statements like that, make sure you can back them up. Like go and look, like research human rights prior to Jesus. Research what did the Roman Empire and Greek Empire and Mesopotamian Empire and all these, like what did they think of human rights? Like the default state of the world is a small group of people enslaving a lot of other people for their pleasure and benefit. That's the base default state of the world. Nothing causes that. That's the base default. So, okay. So how, how did they look and study Jesus, but then also have slaves for so long, like so many groups of people? Absolutely. It's amazing. So if you look at the slavery issue, okay, so one, 
Um, slavery in the Bible is not what we would think of as, as, as slavery. So slavery in the Bible is not chattel slavery, which is skin-based, um, uh, long-enduring, if not permanent, um, uh, uh, property-based slavery. So slavery, when you read about slavery in the, in the Bible, what they're talking about is, is really what it looks like is like kind of low, mm-hmm. low income labor. You couldn't be a slave for longer than seven years. Um, and you were often a slave because of some indebtedness, either that you had or your family had, but you couldn't be enslaved for, for, for tremendously long periods of time. And it wasn't like, uh, a slavery that had, um, it wasn't like the the type again chattel slavery is what it was described is it was what it's called that that was practiced in the United States, which is uh, objectively horrific. And by the way, Christians were the ones. William Wilberforce was the one who destroyed the slave trade worldwide, right? Like he was the motivating British politician who who was a christian deeply devout christian so this is where whenever you hear it's like the the two arguments and this is where i had all these ideas in my head of like oh well the bible condones slavery and you start reading about slavery and paul even says in the new testament he says slaves respect your masters well there you go i don't want to believe in a god who condones slavery that's absurd right but that's what i'm saying is that this is a form of ignorance that that's not true. Like, like that's what I'm saying is we're taking a word that meant something completely different. We're transporting it to now. And then we're taking a group of people who, by the way, there are plenty of people who justify all kinds of crazy things by the Bible. I mean, in fact, the Bible talks about these people as false teachers. So you can find anybody out there on a street corner. I mean, go to any major city in a street corner and you're probably going to find somebody talking about God in a way that's like highly off-putting and probably not very accurate, Right. You can, I mean, there's no rules. Anybody can claim that they believe in whatever, right? So if you got to look at it and say, okay, what is, what is studying Jesus get you to? It gets you to a place where you are more loving, more kind, more gentle, more humble. It's really, really, really hard to take that Jesus seriously and then look at something like slavery and say, it's okay. Which is why the people who fought hardest against slavery were Christians, How do you identify false teachers versus real teachers? Yeah. So uh, this is actually a big issue. When I first um, started down this path, there's so many things. You can you can Google anything. I mean, you can find anything on the internet, as you know. Um, there is a body of work that is what I would call orthodox Christianity, right? Orthodox following of Jesus that has really remained unchanged for 2000 years since, since Jesus was, um, died and resurrected. So, so start there. And even amongst those people, I would say there are primary issues, tertiary, secondary issues and tertiary issues, right? So primary issues are like, you know, Study, study people who agree that, uh, Jesus said he was the son of God. He was God himself, right? Who claimed to be God. If you don't think Jesus is like, actually, uh, Christopher Hitchens has this great interview with a, um, there was a pastor. I think the pastor was in Maine who was interviewing him and, and this interview. So Christopher Hitchens is a famous atheist, um, sort of, it was called a new atheism movement, um, has since passed away, was really influential in my life in my twenties. And this interview where he's, um, he's getting interviewed by this woman and, you know, he, he, she's asking him, well, like, do you believe this? And she's like, well, I believe that too. And, you know, he says, you know, she says, do you believe this? And he's, well, I believe that too. 
And he kind of stops her halfway through this interview. And he says, all due respect, but I'm not sure what we're talking about. Because if you don't believe that Jesus is who he says he was, then you're not a Christian no matter what you claim. And this is an atheist telling a pastor that she was not a Christian. Yeah. Right? So that's what I'm saying is there's a lot of misunderstanding about what is being a Christian, what's not being a Christian. I would say there are creeds out there like Nicene Creed. You can go look it up. Uh, if you study the, the the Jesus of the Bible, like go and read the actual Bible, like that's the Jesus. <laughs> so just start there. Um, and then just know that there's a lot of people who are trying to uh, just like it talks about in the Bible, this happened around the time of Jesus and right after his death, like trying to accrue power and authority and money based on taking the teachings and twisting them to gather people around them for some sort of gain. So the more you find people who are uh, profiting off of Jesus, I just be a little, be a little concerned. Yeah. Hey. Okay. That, that's good to know. Thank you for uh, expanding on that. Of course. Um, I I like to end these podcasts with a challenge or ask the guest for a challenge. And uh, I know my challenge from this podcast episode is going to be to read Luke of the New Testament. That's probably pretty big, though, I would assume. Oh, it's not that big. You, you'll I, you'll get through it in... I mean, I would say go slow, but it'll take you... I would say 10 to 15 days to really dive in, read it, think about it, absorb it, highlight it, underline it, make make questions. Take it to 10 to 15 days. Are there any particular um, translations or, or specific Bibles that you'd recommend? Yeah, I would say um, ESV and NIV are the two that I would recommend you kind of dive into. Actually, I like to read NIV and ESV um, sort of kind of together. So I'll read passages from the ESV and then read passages from NIV. There's also another, um, it, it's, it's more of a loose translation called the message. Um, but Eugene Peterson was this incredible philosopher teacher, and he translated the Bible to be much more, um, how do I say this? Like a conversational, um, it's not a literal word for word translation. It's more of he's trying to embody what Jesus meant and then trying to kind of give it modern day context. So I think if you're going to really dive in, what I would say is ESV, NIV, the message, reading those together in Luke would be an unbelievable. I think you'd be shocked at what you find. I can't wait to explore it. Um, you You say like at the same time, meaning like, like read one paragraph, then read another paragraph. Or read a chapter. The same, yeah. So or, like read read the first the chapter. Day. Yeah. So like I, I would say is like mostly. I mean, maybe you could pick this. It's like take take NIV, read NIV, and read the message, and read like a chapter a day, right? Of gotcha. each one, and just kind of read NIV first, or maybe even actually read message first, and then read NIV second, because um, the message is going to be the easiest to kind of with all the context and modern day sort of language to be able to understand. NIV is a really good modern translation though of the Bible as well. So. Okay. Thank you for explaining that. And of course that's my challenge for myself. Do you have a challenge for someone listening who has listened for the past hour, 10 minutes and now wants to do something from yeah. the podcast in the um, day to day life? <laughs> you know, I would say, 
this challenge is it, it's seemingly small and I, I don't mean it to be small. I think this is really big is I love that you're going to dive into Luke and I, I would encourage anybody who's listening to this definitely take that challenge, dive into Luke, just take Jesus seriously. Like I, that would be my challenge is there's so much, um, Jesus has become such a icon. And I mean, obviously he has the most followers in the history of the world. There are more Christians today on earth and a higher percentage of Christians than in the history of the world, which makes sense, right? If you think truth spreads, truth is real, then it makes sense that there would be more and more and a higher percentage as people heard God calls them. Um, but it's become so ever present that it's almost become invisible. It's become, Jesus has become the water, especially in the Western world that we all swim in. And, you know, like in David Foster Wallace's example in his Kenyan college speech, which is turned into a book called this is water for this exact reason, because he says, you know, the one fish turns the other fish and, you know, and says, what is, what is, what are we doing? What is water? Like after being challenged, like the the old fish, it has the water. And then one turns the other and says, you know, what's water. I feel like that's, that's Jesus. I feel like that everyone thinks they know Jesus and very few people know Jesus. And Jesus is waiting with open arms to welcome you as the, as the, the, the father of the prodigal son. And I, all I can say to end it is like the joy and peace and kindness and generosity that I, whatever comes through me is like, man, if you had met me 10 years ago, you would not have liked me. I didn't like me. And look, I'm, I've still got a lot of rough edges that are being worked out. This is not a finished work by any means. But man, anything you see in me that you think is 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 worth it, it, it really comes from Jesus. And I would just say is Jesus is, is not who you think he is. He is radical. He turns the world upside down. He criticizes people that you would never expect. And he loves people you'd never expect. And so for everyone who's feeling anxious, fearful, broken, confused, Jesus brings love and peace and clarity and it's the best thing in the world. I mean, it is, it is, I, in the Bible, there's a story of a man who finds a treasure in a field and sells everything to buy the field. That's my life. Like I, when I realized who Jesus really was, um, I sold everything and bought the field and, um, it's been the best decision of my life. So the challenge, take Jesus seriously and, I'm going to read Luke and see what happens. Thank you so much for taking the time for explaining your worldview, exploring your peace and your presence. I, I really appreciate you taking the time and uh, I'm, I'm really grateful for it. Thank no, you. I'm grateful for you, Danny. Keep doing what you're doing, man. I'm so encouraged by you. I appreciate it.